about, I don't know, uh, maybe eight months ago when we began the book of Acts, we talked about really the overall theme for the book of Acts and how it's, it's God's plan continues unhindered. And really the subtitle, you know, if that was the book title for the series, God's Plan Continues Unhindered, really the subtitle for it really would be that, that Jesus is continuing to expand his church through the power of the Spirit despite any potential opposition, despite all opposition. And that's good news for us this morning as I reflect back on the family meeting and look forward to this coming year that God's plans continue unhindered, that Jesus is continuing to build his church to expand his church through the power of the Spirit, despite any and all oppositions. And so that's really going to inform the text this morning. We're going to be seeing that, that Jesus is continuing to expand his church and his plan is continuing through the life of Paul, who's a very frail, weak servant. So turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 18, we're going through verses 1 through 18 this morning. Let's hear this is God's holy, inspired word for us today. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. Oh, I just said that again, because they were tent makers by trade. <laughs> And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. For I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the house of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your word is mighty. Thank you that your word is powerful. Thank you that you give us accounts like this so we might be encouraged to see where you are at work. 
God, so often we can forget that you are at work. So often we can feel like we're the main players in, in what you've called us to do, Lord. And so often we can forget that you're the one who enables us and you're the one who sustains us and you're the one who is with us. So Father, I pray this morning that we would actually see that we are not alone, that we would see that you are with your servants in and through everything. God, I pray that we would experience your encouragement, your conviction, Lord, and your comfort. God, I'm aware of my weakness this morning. I I come in much weakness, but Lord, you are not weak. You are all-powerful. God, we, we as hearers, Lord, we hear in weakness, but I, I pray, Father, that you would empower us to hear your word this morning. Affect our hearts, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, about 26 years ago, and if you want to do the math, you can. If you, about 26 years ago, I was a junior in high school, and we were driving down in the car together with my sister, my parents, and, and there was this song, there's this 14-hour ride from Virginia all the way down to Florida, and there's this song 26 years ago, it kept repeating. Every station, no matter what we changed to, this song was all over the air. It's, I'm sure you're familiar with that from some movie last winter that they, it still won't die, you know, that, those, those songs today. But that song 26 years ago, if you were alive then, you probably heard it way too much too. The, the lyrics, they, they went like this. It, it, it says, here's a little song I wrote. You might want to sing it note for note. Don't worry, be happy. In every life we have some trouble, but when you worry, you make it double. Don't worry, be happy. Ain't got no place to lay your head. Somebody came and took your bed. Don't worry, be happy. The landlords say, your rent is late. He may have to litigate. It's a nod to Rob Mosley. Don't worry, be happy. Ain't got no cash, ain't got no style, ain't got no gal to make you smile. Don't worry, be happy. It, it was a really catchy song. It was really popular in the day. It had a really decent beat for the 80s. You know, it wasn't, wasn't that great, but it was a decent beat for the 80s. And, and I think the other reason why it resonated with people so much is that it acknowledged that we all face difficulties. We all face challenges. We all face Um, Different hardships, concerns in life. And we all face the ideas of worry. But the problem is the song was really empty. And it became annoying because it really didn't offer any real solutions. It really didn't offer any ways to be happy. It just was like, don't worry, be happy. There's no content there. And so it was really kind of like eating cotton candy. It just didn't last. And, And there was really no lasting encouragement from that song. It was just acknowledging we have lots of problems, but don't worry, be happy. Act like it's all good. Well, you you really can't do that. You really can't pretend that everything's all good. We're aware there's difficulties, there's challenges in life, there's hardships that we face. We, at times, we're weak, we're weary, we fear. Sometimes we, we falter. Although we have, um, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, we're aware that God's made us anew in him and he's, he's, he's given us a new heart and a new mind. But still, in the midst of that, we can turn to worry and fear and trembling. But God provides true and lasting encouragement. And I think what we're going to take a look at, really one of the themes that we're going to pull out from this passage is, is how God encourages his servant in his work. God encourages his servant in his work. And that's what we're going to see here as, as we look at what is God about doing in this passage? No, it's not a direct teaching. Luke's not just saying God's encouraging his servant. Look how he encouraged Paul. But what he's doing is he's laying out 
how God was encouraging Paul. As Paul went about his work, he's showing us how was God encouraging him. So we can see that God's at work and God's encouraging his servant in multiple ways. And really the the key to the whole passage here is verses 9 and 10. When Jesus knows where Paul is at and he knows that Paul is afraid and he speaks to Paul. And so really that's the, the key for our passage this morning is verses 9 and 10. It kind of centers on those things. We need to see, though, before we see why is it good news that God encouraged his servant, we need to see why was Paul in need of encouragement to begin with? Why, why do I say that Paul needed encouragement? Why do I say that God was encouraging his servant? Where am I getting that from? Well, it's not an unusual thing that we see that God's servant would face discouragement, even when they're doing what God's called them to do. We, we can relate to that, can't we? God calls us to different things as believers, gives us different vocations, gives us different families and different places to live. And, 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 and so many times we can be in so much faith for what God has called us to. And yet, in the middle of those things, we can sometimes lack faith. We can sometimes become discouraged. We can become weary, even when we're doing what God's called us to do. Now, we are encountering Paul, and he is in the middle of his, his second missionary journey at this point. And his mission is met with mixed results along the way. And, and he and Silas, they, they travel to the beginning of the journey through, through Syria and Cilicia and Derbe and Lystra. And they strengthen the churches there. And then they picked up Luke and Timothy along the way. So Paul and Silas, they had to be greatly encouraged. But then what happens next is they go to Philippi and they think everything's going to go wonderfully. And then they get beaten with rods and they get beaten really to the, to the near death is what they're experiencing. This wouldn't be a light beating. This is a severe beating. They get beaten with rods in Philippi and they were jailed and then God delivers them and then they, they were kind of ushered out of town. They were asked to leave by the magistrate there so they go from there. They go on to Thessalonica eventually and then he's run out of town by the Jews and he's got this theme. He goes and he preaches in the synagogue. There's some success that he meets. And then he's run out of town. This seems to be a continual theme for Paul and Silas in, in their missionary journey. So he's run out of Thessalonica. And then he goes to Berea. And just when things are going really well in Berea, what happens? He's pursued by the Jews from Thessalonica. And they come and they run him out of town there. And so kind of like in the middle of the night, he goes on this boat ride. And he's trying to, 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 to get out to safety. And so the brothers, they, they kind of whisk him off. And they leave Silas and Timothy behind in Berea. And so Paul, he likely picks Athens. He has a choice of where to go. He likely picks Athens because it's an intellectual city of the ancient world, really. It was, it, was, it was known as being the center of thought, really, where great ideas like democracy and philosophy came about. But what happens in Athens? He wasn't well received there either. And in Athens, in fact, he, he does his best job to reason with him in the marketplace. He reasons in the synagogue. He's, he's reasoning with whatever he goes. He makes this impassioned, brilliant speech in the Areopagus. And you would think, wow, all these people must have come to Christ as a result. And yet, maybe a few of the intellectual elite come. And so he leaves Athens. They said, well, perhaps we'll hear you on this again. But they didn't really mean it. And so Paul never returned. And, and he's probably thinking, they don't, they don't, they're not really interested. They're really they're really dispassionate about this message. This, this message that's meant to be the best news ever, they're really ambivalent towards. And so he leaves Athens, and he arrives in Corinth, and he's weak, and he's fearful. 
Well, where do we get that from? How do we know this? You see, sometimes after Paul had left Corinth, because he was in Corinth, we're going to find out for about a year and a half, maybe a little bit more, maybe up to two years. After he leaves Corinth, somewhere about a year or two later, he wrote them a letter. He wrote a letter back to the church he had founded, and we call it 1 Corinthians in our Bible. It's probably the second letter, actually. But in that letter, he refers back to his time in Corinth and how he came to him. And, and, and he says in 1 Corinthians 2, 1, and look, look at it on your overhead, Here's how Paul came to Athens, I mean to Corinth. This is how he's entering into the city. Paul's reflecting back, when I came to you, he's saying, here's how I came to you. He says, and when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He had just come from Athens. He was just doing his best job at at using his his most exalted rhetoric. He says, "I I didn't come that way. He says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And, and here is one of the keys to understanding how is Paul coming into Corinth. He says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Now, now Paul at times may have been prone to hyperbole, but he was not speaking hyperbole here. He was saying, I, I came from Athens. And you can just picture this, this war-weary soldier. He's, he's going from place to place. He was beaten of Philippi. He's kicked out of Thessalonica, kicked out of Berea. In Athens, his message met with little to no success. And, and so he comes, and now he comes to Corinth, this, the fifth largest city perhaps in the world at the time. And, and he, sees, he sees this debauchery on one hand, and then he sees this arrogance and this pride on the other. And he comes, and he's in much fear and trembling and weakness. The Corinthians, they were very proud in their arrogance. It's, it's clearly seen in the letter to the Corinthians just a few short years later. The city had been rebuilt by Julius Caesar himself. They hosted the famous Isthmian Games, which they rivaled the Olympic Games of the time. And Corinth was, was situated in between the mainland of, of Greece and the, and, the, and the Peloponnesian Peninsula. It was right in the middle of this little four-mile-wide stretch, and it was, it was central to all north and south trade. It was central to east and west traffic because what would happen is these ships, they would, they would take a shortcut through the Gulf of Corinth to go from the Ionian Sea to the Aegean Sea. They put these ships on rollers to go across to save a 200-mile journey around the peninsula. It was a prominent port, but it was, it, was a, it was a city that was full of immorality. And so maybe Paul was intimidated by that. I don't know. Maybe, maybe Paul was intimidated by the, just the sheer level of debauchery in the city. Maybe Paul was intimidated in fear and trembling because of the pride. Maybe Paul was thinking, boy, if God, if, if, if it is successful here, what happens next? If I go in the synagogue, maybe a lot of people will respond. And if they do, what then? I'm going to be beaten this time? I'm going to be kicked out of town? See, he was a man just like you and me. He was prone to the same temptations we're prone to. And I got to think that we would be thinking, oh man, what's going to happen now? Either I'm going to be rejected because they're so immoral and proud, or I'll be rejected because um, the Jews will hate me. And so he comes in much weakness and fear and in trembling. Corinth was kind of like the wilder version of, of modern day Las Vegas, New Orleans, maybe Amsterdam combined. The Corinthians were, were so widely known for their immorality and debauchery that to call somebody a Corinthian woman, it was a euphemism for calling them a harlot, and the verb to Corinthianize um, meant to practice sexual immorality. 
The temple of Aphrodite, the, the Romans called Venus, the goddess of love, it was built on the Acro Corinth, right in the middle of town, in an exalted place, and there was about a thousand slave girls who would go into the city at night and they would practice prostitution. And yet Paul is going in and he says, he sees all this around him and he's in fear and he's in trembling. He's like, I'm resolving that what they need is the message of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's, that's the only message with power. It's not any persuasive words of speech. And so Paul, he's encountering this cosmopolitan, this proud, this immoral city, and he doesn't come in boldly or triumphantly. He comes in in weakness. He comes in in fear and in trembling. But, but I want you to see a few things. It's, Luke wasn't aware of that. Maybe he was, he was still back in Philippi. But, but Paul, Paul was downcast. And God sends encouragement to him along the way. And the first way I want you to see that we can, we can see in the passage where God is encouraging his servant is that God encourages his servant with provision. God, God provides for Paul. God encourages his servant with provision. Shortly after Paul arrives in Corinth, we can see in the passage that God provides Jewish friends there in Aquila and Priscilla. They're likely Christians already. They're willing to let him stay with him. Scripture tells us that Aquila, he was, he was originally from Pontus. And in the course of things, he moved to Rome and then recently, he and his wife, they left Rome and they settled in Corinth. And it, and it tells us why. It says because Emperor Claudius had, de, had deported all the Jews from Rome. And we know that that's a historical fact because we have records of it. In fact, the Roman historian Suetonius, he, he wrote of this event that probably occurred somewhere around 49 AD. And he wrote that since the Jews constantly make disturbances at the instigation of Christus, which is probably a mispronunciation of the word Christus, they sounded very similar. He expelled them from Rome. Most scholars would think that he was expelling them from Rome because the Romans confused this, this talk about Christus or Christus with, with Judaism. And they didn't realize that, no, this Christianity that was stirring up so many problems. And by the way, when the gospel goes forth, it, it stirs up. It stirs up. And so Rome was getting stirred up, and so Claudius was having nothing to do with that, and so he kicks out the Christians, and, and because he's associated with the Jews, he kicks out the Jews. And so somehow they, they, just, they just come to Corinth, and they, they met. Paul found out they were there, and that there they were fellow Jews, fellow Christians, who also happened to be tent makers, and Paul was a tent maker as well. And so he goes and he finds them, and, and they provide a place for him to stay. And so God, really, we can see in this, is provision for lonely Paul. Paul was there by himself. God was providing a place to stay and finances through giving him work. And, and Paul was not only provided for by God through his own hands. Later, we're going to see that, that Timothy and Silas, they brought financial gift as well. And so Paul was provided through that. But God used his own work to provide for him. You know, sometimes it's that mix of who's at work. Is it God at work and we at work? Yes. God uses our work as we're at work and God's at work. Which one goes first? Well, they're both the way that God provides. God provides through our work. And so Paul worked with his hands. He was raised. He was educated to be a rabbi. And rabbis at the time, they would have been taught that they, that they were required to have a trade. And so he would have been taught a trade as a young man. And so he became a tent maker and it was so they could support themselves and also so they could better relate to the people they taught. And I know I was thinking about that and thinking, why was Paul working? And well, first of all, he was working because he needed to eat. 
and God provided through his work, but also he was working so that they didn't think that the message of the gospel was for profit. And he was working as an example. And he was also working so he could relate better to the people that he taught. And I was thinking about in my own past, in my own experience, I know the, the myriad types of jobs that I had from when I was a kid up. You know, I worked for my dad in, in, in construction excavation. I drove heavy equipment. I dug ditches. Then I bust tables in a restaurant. I worked in grocery stores. I cut down trees. I did security for the government. I worked in IT. Then I worked in management for a bunch of different kinds of companies. And I thought all of those things were not only the means that God provided for me, but they were also means that God helped me be able to relate to all different kinds and walks of people so that hopefully the message of the gospel might be more effective. And I was just thinking, I, I know I'd encourage any young man who wants to be a pastor to, to learn a trade, um, to, to have a career, have a job, to... Not only do you learn a lot through life experience, it helps build character, helps you relate to people. Not only that, it, it, who knows if pastors in the future will be able to be supported by their churches or where God might call you. Well, in any case, we see here in Acts 18, um, Paul, he's a model of this cross-cultural ministry and God's providing for him not only through his own work, but later, when Timothy and Silas arrive, we see that it says that, that Paul devoted himself to teaching the Word. In other translations, it, it says that he devoted himself solely to teaching God's Word, and I think that has the, the meaning correctly there. And you think, how in the world could he do that? Well, we found out in, in 2 Corinthians eleven eight 8, and Philippians four fourteen that when, when Timothy and Silas, they came, they brought a gift from Macedonia, because he's commending the people from Philippi where Luke was, and he's saying, thank you that no other church supported me in my work except for you. And so God's providing for him supernaturally, not just through his own work, but then God's providing for him through other people. And so Paul's boldly proclaiming to the Jews that the Christ that they were looking for was in fact Jesus of Nazareth. And, and what's the response that this message of, of Christ and him crucified, this, his resolve to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified, what's the response that this message gets? Well, they didn't like it. It says they reviled him, they opposed him. The word there actually has a connotation of they blasphemed in response. And so Paul, it's this, this very vivid picture. He responded the way a rabbi really was taught to respond to blasphemy. He gets up probably in the middle of their Sabbath teaching time. He gets up and he shakes out the robes. And you're wondering, what in the world is that all about? Why is he shaking out the robes? It's because it was a symbolic gesture of saying, I'm going to shake off. I don't want any bit of dust from the synagogue to remain because I don't want to be associated with you anyway. I don't want, to, I don't want anything to do with you because you've blasphemed the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he shakes out his robes and then he says, your blood be on your own heads. Look down your Bible. He says, I'm innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. And then verse seven, if you look down your Bible, it says, and he left there and went to the house of a man called Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Paul, in the midst of being discouraged, in the midst of being in fear and trembling, he's, he's making his message known at the synagogue, and they reject him again. He must be thinking, well, what next? You know, what now? Either two things will happen here. And so he goes to the house of Titius Justice, who's right next door to the synagogue, and and then the leader of the synagogue becomes a believer. 
How crazy is that? God's providing fruit in the midst of Paul's weariness. He's providing fruit in the midst of Paul's discouragement. He's providing fruit to encourage Paul. In verse 8, it tells us this remarkable news. It says, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, he believed in the Lord Jesus along with his whole household. And as a result, it says, many Corinthians that heard Paul believed and were baptized into the church. In the midst of his fear and trembling and weakness, God is encouraging through fruit. And yet, like so many of us, when God's at work, we can fail to see that and we can still have difficulties. We can still fear. And maybe Paul was thinking, you know what? If I, great, now that I'm experiencing fruit, God, thank you for bringing the fruit, but now that we're experiencing fruit, what, am I going to get beaten? Kicked out of the city? He must have been afraid because that's what happened previously. But look down at verse 9 and 10, if you will, please. Luke writes, And the Lord, and this is the Lord Jesus, said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And we're going to see really this, how God is encouraging his servant with his presence. God encourages his servant with his presence. Think about some of my children throughout the years and still continuing, and they, they'll have a bad dream in the middle of the night. I tend to sleep a little lighter so I can hear them, and, and they're yelling out in the middle of the night, and they're crying out, and, and I'll go to them in the middle of the night, and the room is pitch dark because we have blackout curtains there. We don't want them to ever wake up in the middle of the night. You know, it's, then you don't get sleep. So you go there, and I come into this dark room, and yet the first thing I'm doing when I come into this dark room is I, I want them to know it's me so that they're not freaked out even more. You know, I open the door. I don't want them to think it's the boogeyman, you know, whoever they're scared of. And so I say, you know, it's me, it's dad. And then I comfort them. And I, I comfort them with my voice and then I comfort them with my presence and, and I let them know I'm here. It's okay. Whatever, whatever you're afraid of, it's, it's not true. And then, and then I'll pray with them and I'll encourage them that God is bigger than all that and I want to bring them comfort, not just with my presence, but with God's presence. And, and that's the way that God encourages His servant as a loving Father. He hears our cries. He knows when we're distraught, when we're afraid. The difference is we don't have to actually verbally cry out. God hears us anyway. And He comes in the midst of our darkness and He comes in the midst of our distress and our fear and he comforts us with his voice. And that's what we're, we're seeing here is that, is that Jesus knows that Paul was afraid and weary and, and trembling. And so Jesus hears his cry, even though it might not be spoken, and he comforts Paul with his presence. God wasn't indifferent to Paul's suffering. He wasn't indifferent to Paul's fears. He didn't just say, Paul, really? Haven't I been faithful? Suck it up. You know, sometimes we, th- we think of God that way, right? We think of God as if he's angry with us when we're weak. We think of God as if he's angry with us when we're fearful, when we're trembling. We think of God as if, if he's thinking, oh gosh, really? Can't you see me? Why don't you, why don't you just get with it? Don't you see them at work? And yet that's not how God treats us. That's not how he relates to us. He's like a merciful, loving father. And he comes and he speaks words of encouragement to his servants. Just like he was speaking words of encouragement to Paul, and Jesus wants Paul to be reassured that he hasn't left him, he hasn't forsaken him, even though Paul must have been tempted to feel like he was alone. Paul was probably tempted to think it's just him against the world. He's in this massive, immoral city. 
But Jesus let him know that it wasn't just Paul alone against the world. And Paul heard the first words, really, that I was thinking about this. These are the same words that the angels spoke to the shepherds announcing that Jesus was coming. They said, do not be afraid. Why? Because God knows that we're tempted to fear. He, he, he knew that Paul was, would potentially be tempted to be afraid, that he was, being, he was already fearful. And Jesus wanted to know that he wasn't distant, that he had come, and that he knew his temptations and cared for him in the midst of his temptations and trials. Even though it wasn't going to be the last trials that Paul would endure. And we know that later on, Paul does endure trials. And eventually, he's, he's killed for his faith. We don't see that in Acts, but we see that from first century literature. And Jesus was encouraging him to not give up. And I was thinking about Paul's primary way of sharing the gospel. It was, it was through communicating with words, and, and that was what Paul was all about. He was, he was sharing the message of the good news of Jesus Christ that says that, that Jesus came because man was separated from God on his own because of his sin, and that Jesus came to do what man can never do, to be, to be perfect, to live a perfect life, and that's the only way to be acceptable before God, and so Jesus did that in our place, and, and he paid the punishment for all of the ways that we've rebelled against God and had false idols and that Jesus took the wrath of God in our place. And Paul's declaring this message, but he's tempted to not continue speaking. How do we know that? Because Jesus directly addresses it. He says, don't be afraid, but go on speaking. Don't be silent. And and he gives he gives Paul the best reason to not fear, the best reason to not be silent that he would ever hear. Jesus says, Paul, don't, don't fear, have courage, keep speaking of me, but it wasn't this empty command with a prom- without a promise. It wasn't just suck it up, Paul. It was, it was a command with comfort. The risen Jesus, he knew his servant's struggles and he comes to him directly and he speaks to him and he And he's wanting him to know he's not distant, he's with him. You know, I was thinking about, like Paul, we're, we're tempted to be afraid. We're tempted to, to stop speaking when we encounter the pride and immorality, when we encounter opposition and rejection, when we encounter difficulties, or maybe ambivalence to the message. And we're thinking, well, what's the point? Should I just give up speaking? Should I give up living for him? We might be tempted to be afraid to live for Jesus and speak up about Jesus publicly. After all, what will people think of us? What will they do to us? Will we lose our friends, our employment? Will people think that we're radicals? Like Paul, though, I, we need to hear the encouragement of our Savior as well. We can have confidence that, that, confidence that Jesus gives the same promise to all who place their faith and trust in Him for life. How do I know that? Well, in Hebrews 13, 5 through 8, Jesus tells us that He'll He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He says, so we can confidently say, the Lord's my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me now? We can be content. We can have courage because no matter who might leave us, no matter how we might be rejected, he will never leave us. He'll never forsake us no matter who might We can be confident and say, the Lord's my helper. I won't fear. He is with me. I don't need to be afraid. Why? Because he is with me. 
Because the maker, the creator and sustainer of the universe who upholds all things by his hand says to us, don't be afraid. Why? Because I'm with you. It's not just an isolated encouragement for Paul. It's an encouragement for us. And it didn't just comfort Paul and tell him to not be afraid. I'm with you. We see a third way that God's going to be encouraging his servant. God encourages his servant with promises. He encourages his servant with promises. God didn't just encourage Paul with his presence. He promises Paul some specific things. He says, don't be afraid, Paul. I'm with you. And then he promises them two different things here, really. He promises protection, and then he promises fruitfulness in ministry. And, and John, Jesus lets Paul know that he was, he was going to protect Paul. And he says in the second half of verse 10, he says, no one will attack you to harm you. Now, that wasn't always the case for Paul. And later on, it won't be the case for Paul. But in this case, Jesus is, is bringing his word of promise. is saying, I'm going to protect you. Um, the, the work that I've called you to, I'm going to enable you to do. He says, no one will attack you to harm you, for I have, in the second half of that, for I have many in this city who are my people. And we see that that's, that second part of the statement there is really a promise. It, it's a promise that he'll make his work fruitful. He's promising fruitfulness in ministry. What does it mean? You see, this is, Paul was establishing the church. They had not yet heard the gospel, had not yet spread throughout Corinthians, and because Paul later on says, I planted the seed, Apollo watered, but I planted, and yet God knew in advance. He says, Paul, don't be concerned. Your mission here is going to be successful because I have many in the city. So God's protecting him. God doesn't always provide rescue for for Paul from harm's way. But he wants them to know that he's sovereignly working in and through all the different persecution and trials and hardship and suffering that Paul experienced. And he was going to sustain him to do the work that he was calling him to do. And he was going to protect him to do this work. And whatever it is that God has called you and I to, God will protect us in that work. He'll he'll sustain us. He'll enable us in that work. That doesn't mean we're going to live a life free from suffering, free from trials, free from hardship. No, no. They're going to come probably later, but God will protect us in the work he's called us to because he's going to make us fruitful. So he says that I have many in the city who are my people as well. For us, I find assurance, and all of us can find assurance, that God, who is the same yesterday and today and forever, he not only promises to enable us to do what he's called us to do, but he knows that he has many people in the city here too. That, that gives me confidence as, as I know that we're called to, to be disciples who are following him, who are growing in him and are going out and making disciples. It gives me confidence that I know that, that Jesus said he has, he has many in this city, that he knows who he has even if I don't. So that can give me confidence that he is going to make his work fruitful. It's not about me, not about my performance, not about my lofty speech, not about the words we use, not about our eloquence. This is about the power of God for salvation, the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so that's why Paul has confidence later on when he writes Corinthians, and I had resolved, no, nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified because I wanted to demonstrate the power of of the Spirit and the power was not lying within me, but in the message I brought so God encourages Paul. And, and Paul was comforted, it says, and he, he stays in Corinth a year and a half teaching the word of God among them. 
But after a year and a half, Paul must have been a little worried. Things look like they're going to begin to change because verse 12, look down your Bible. It says, But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. The Jews here, they'd had enough finally. They're trying to figure out a way to bring a charge against Paul. They're trying to figure out a way to stop this message because they think ultimately that they're able to stop the message. But we know differently as we read through Acts that God's plan continues unhindered. But they go before Gallio and they're bold, they're brave. And, and, and the Jews would have known that any matters relating to their own law, they were responsible to resolve. And so when they bring this up to Gallio, what they're saying is this really isn't about Jewish law. This is about this other sect. And it's really violating Roman laws, what they're saying to Gallio. And the man they're bringing this before, he's, he's really the governor of the, the province of Achaia. And as a proconsul, he would have been the chief magistrate, the highest judge. His, his ruling has the same effect as law in the entire province. And Gallio was a prominent man. He, he tutored young Nero before he was an emperor. He was the son of the famous orator Seneca. He, had, he was brother to the Stoic philosopher Seneca the Younger. And, and so the Jews are bringing Paul before Gallio, this man whose word carried weight not only in Achaia but in the Roman Empire and would have set precedent for Roman law. And they thought they had the authority to, to keep Paul from teaching against Jewish and therefore Roman law. But then Paul, I, I love the picture there. It says, Paul was just about to open his mouth. And I can think of so many occasions where when I'm about to open my mouth and make my own defense that God provides and that God encourages and that God protects. Not through my own efforts, but really God was working behind the scenes through Gallio. And we see that Paul's about to open his mouth and make his defense. And before he could, Gallio answers the Jews. Look down at verse 14. It says, But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crimes, O Jews, I'd have a reason to accept your complaint. But, but since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And then it says he drove them from the tribunal. So what do we see here? We see God's using Gallio to provide divine protection for Paul. And as a result, other Christians, and not only in that province, but throughout the empire, that word would have spread about Gallio's ruling. Like today, if you think about it, in the the Supreme Court or other high courts, when they decide not to hear a case, that's actually a ruling that the case doesn't have merit to be heard, and so that it stands on its own, and that what's happening can continue and so when Galilee refused to hear the case against Paul, he was effectively ruling that Christianity wasn't against Roman law, that it was a legally allowed religion, that it was not distinguished from, from Judaism, and its laws were not a threat to Rome. And so although Paul may have been tempted to be afraid and fearful, God's showing that he's keeping his promises to Paul, and he's keeping his promise of protection, and he's doing that through earthly means. He's doing that through the government. He's doing that through man, men he's appointed. We know later on that, that Paul says that the government actually has been appointed here for, for our good and that God actually works through that, even when it's corrupt governments like the Roman government, which is extremely corrupt, or maybe it's our government systems today. You might be thinking you're too corrupt for God to work, and yet we can see that God actually provides his promises and divine protection even through ungodly men. 
So Luke's showing how God is faithful to his word. Then this interesting side note in in verse 17, it says, They all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to this. So instead of of Paul getting beaten, we see Sosthenes. He would have been the ruler of the synagogue who replaced Crispus because Crispus, he became a believer, so he would have had to been replaced, you know? Christians didn't typically lead the synagogue. And so Sosthenes, he, he was now the synagogue leader. And, and as a synagogue leader, he probably was the one who would have brought Paul before this tribunal, before the proconsul, and he would have been the one to make the accusation. And so in the Greeks' eyes around him, they would have said, he's responsible for bringing this frivolous lawsuit really before Gallio. And, and, and so instead of beating Paul, they take Sosthenes and they beat him in front of the tribunal, and it says Gallio paid no attention to this, and it doesn't mean that he didn't see it. It meant that he was, he was thinking it was judicious to overlook that because they had no right to make that case. And so he allows that to occur, and something that's interesting later on, we, we know that when, when Paul writes the letter to 1 Corinthians, uh, probably a year or two later, he, wrote that he, he writes that, that he greets you and, and so does our brother Sosthenes. And, and it's thought by most and by historians that that same Sosthenes who was beaten for really accusing Paul, he, he likely became the believer who's Paul, who Paul is mentioning in, in Corinthians because he, he would have mentioned somebody prominent like that who's now become a prominent believer. And so you just see that God's just continuing to do his work. And then it says, because of God's faithful protection, look in verse 18, as a direct result of God's promise of protecting and promise that he has people in the city and he's going to bear fruit. It says, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers. And he set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. Notice that he doesn't leave under duress. He doesn't leave under persecution. He's not leaving because he got kicked out. He's leaving on his own because God was faithful to his promises, that God was protecting and providing fruit. And Paul says, my work here is done now. Now I can move on. And we know from Paul's other letters, not only from 1 and 2 Corinthians, that God indeed had many in Corinth and probably hundreds had probably come to know Christ by now in this short span, probably two years or less. Because God knew who belonged to him and God was faithful to his promises to Paul. Paul faced uncertainty. He faced discouragement, but God provided encouragement for Paul. How in the world does this relate to us? Well, some of us today may be facing discouragement. We may have experienced the ups and downs of life. Life's not all rosy. It doesn't always go well. We don't always meet with success. Sometimes we're run out of our workplace or run out of our school or our neighbors don't like us or maybe our relatives don't like us because we're Christians. Some of us might be weary or weak like the Apostle Paul was. He says, I came to you in much weakness and fear and trembling. Some of us might be in good times now, but we might be worried, you know, hey, wait a minute, when's the other shoe going to drop? When, you know, if we have success right now, does that mean that what's following is that I'm, I'm going to experience hardship next? You know, some of us can be tempted to fear and worry there, thinking, wait a minute, this might be too good to be true, because what's coming next? Oh, no. Some people might be afraid of what people might say or do to us. Maybe you're fearing that. Maybe you're fearing what people think about you. 
know personally, as a pastor, you always have the temptation. It's a temptation we always battle, but it's a temptation to always wonder, you know, how, how, how am I doing? How's this message getting across? And you have this temptation to, to be fearful about what people think and what people think about you and what people think about how you speak and all those things. And we're all tempted in those ways. We're all tempted to think about what people's opinions are of us and what they might do to us. And what that is is we're losing sight of God, that He's with us that he's bigger than us, that he's the one who bears fruit, that he's the one at work, and he's the one who's with us, and he's the one who will sustain us, and he's the one who will provide for us, and he's the one who will protect us, and he's the one who will help us, and he's the one who will make us bear fruit. And we forget all those things. And we think somehow that we're the ones who it all depends upon. As if we have to have lofty arguments when we share the gospel, or as if we have to have all the answers, or be smart, or... But all of us can be assured that God wants to encourage us in the midst of the work he's called us to. He's not, in the midst of our discouragement, sometimes we can feel like, you know, God is just, you know, he's, he's, he's lost his patience with us. You ever feel like that? You ever feel like God loses patience with us? And here's the thing, as, as his children, God comes to us and he says, I'm with you. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. Hear the words of, of Hebrews 13, 5 again. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And then in 1 Peter 5, 7, I think God wants to encourage us specifically as a church that we don't, we don't need to be fearful. We don't need to be worried. We don't need to be and, and trembling and fear because we're weak. Look in, in 1 Peter 5, 7. He says, casting, he's encouraging us to be casting all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Then in Philippians 4, 5, and 6, God says to us through Paul, he says, the Lord is at hand. Why does he start there? Because that was the basis for Paul personally. He knew the only way he could not be afraid was to know that Jesus was with them. And so when he writes to Philippians, he says, the Lord's at hand. Remember, God's with you. Jesus is with you. And it's, it's almost a therefore, do not be anxious about anything. The Lord's at hand. Don't be anxious about anything. Whatever you're tempted to be anxious about, maybe it's provision or protection or what people think about you. Or maybe you're weak or weary and you think, will I ever not be discouraged? You know, sometimes you can be discouraged about being discouraged. And, and God wants us to lift up our eyes away from ourselves, away from our problems, away from our troubles, away from those things and say, the Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Why thanksgiving? So we can look up and see that God's at work. We need to do that regularly. That's why we began our family meeting that way. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And here's the promise and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, which means it's, it's greater than understanding of what we see, what we're aware of. He says, it will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus as we look up, as we see him, and as we see that he's at work, the peace of God that's going to surpass all this understanding here. As we see that he's with us and he's working and he's the one who's going to cause us to bear fruit and he's going to sustain us and provide for us and, and protect us. 
And then lastly, after Jesus commissioned his followers, he gave them a great promise. He promised his continual presence to all of his disciples. And by the way, that includes not just the disciples then, but it includes you and and me. Matthew 28, 20, Jesus says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And that language, that I am language, that would have been reminiscent of, of God in the Old Testament when he declares who he is and he says, I am, I am the eternal one, I am the infinite one, I am the almighty, I am the self-sustaining one. And so when Jesus says to his disciples and to you and to me, and he says, behold, I am, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. If I could ask you to stand for a moment and the band would come up, that would be great. I want to respond um, in, in worship to God, placing our faith and our hope in God for what better promises can we have. We need to look up and see that He is with us no matter what you're facing, no matter what challenges, difficulties, weakness, weariness, fear, trembling, whatever it is. What better promise could we want than to know that He is with us and He'll never leave us